I always want to quote Tolkien. Frodo says, I wish I weren't born now. I wish I weren't having to face this. And Gandalf says something like, all we can do is our best in the times that we're placed in. You do your best with the place, the time, and the opportunities you have to to make change. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Michelle Dietrich, is a poet and now farmer who is late to enter politics, but has been busily making her mark in Michigan and nationally. She began organizing for Bernie Sanders in Michigan, ran successfully for county commissioner and for the DNC, where she founded and is national chair of the DNC Council on Environment and Climate. Michelle has a great story about becoming a progressive activist. You'll want to listen. So first my sponsor, then my interview with Michelle Dietrich. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Michelle, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Absolutely. My name is Michelle Dietrich. I'm an organizer, poet, founder and chair at the DNC Environment and Climate Crisis Council. I'm nourished and inspired by two intertwined passions. Um, And looking back, I have been from the beginning. Um, They're passions for poetry and for justice that I pursued sort of via both service opportunities and through the political sphere. The nickname some of my friends locally give me is poet, poetician. (laughs) But I I do think that what binds those passions together is, is a love for the word and for the world and a sense of how generous the world is to us as a species and that we need to respond to that. You're a rare guest that's mentioned poetry in the context of politics. My father taught English literature, and so poetry was around my world a lot. And I find poems to be friends sometimes. What was the first time that that entered your life as something, as one of your passions? Good question. I don't remember when it wasn't part of my life or part of my passions. I grew up in a family that... We were not well off when I was young. Let's put it that way. I had a teenage Latina mom. Uh, my dad was, tele- was a telephone lineman. They took me when I was seven months old from tiny town in Wisconsin to California in search of greater opportunities. And so I grew up watching my mom go to college at night. It was free community college and and uh, state college in California at that time. So it was it was possible for them and studying during the day. 
and she majored in English. So there were always books. Sometimes they weren't able to pay the heating bill, but there were always books around. The gift I remember most from when I was a child was in fourth grade. My dad built me a desk for Christmas. My mom had been denied one by her parents. Her brother got one, but she was a girl and didn't get one. And so I got a desk and, you know, it had paper and it had a lamp and it meant so much to me. I was the kid in fifth grade who was, instead of doing her math homework, was sitting in the back of the room secretly writing poetry. And, um, but, but even then, um, there was this other aspect to what I cared about deeply, which was um, justice, I think, equity. In fifth grade, I was also debated solo against three boys about whether women should be paid equally with men. It's actually amazing to me. My teacher thought that would be a great topic, but um, I won. <laughs> I'm still proud of that because uh, I was kind of a shy kid. And then I was rewarded uh, for that by the nickname of Ms., which was not used in a kind way. It pursued me all the way through high school, but I didn't back down. It was just always there. And I think about how important poetry is and how undervalued in our culture. It's not always that way. You know, look at Václav Havel, right, in Europe. But in this culture, I think it really does inform our language. It keeps us true, um, reminds us of, of language that seeks to be used for truth instead of for spin and misinformation, which is the other side of it in too much of the political world. Is there a poet that you think has bearing on politics that you recommend? Oh, too many. That's what's behind me <laughs> um, on my poetry books. Right now, I, I go back uh, a lot to Joy Harjo, who's our National Poet Laureate, Indigenous uh, poet. Oh, what's the name of the poem? It's about how so much of what really matters happens at the kitchen table, in that community, in family, together, um, and uh, resonates very deeply with that ending scene in Don't Look Up. And I think Adrian Rich wrote some poetry that was really prescient about the moment that we find ourselves in, almost prophesying this time of extreme disinformation, approaching or already here fascism. So I go back to them a lot. I noticed that you went to Wesleyan and did English literature there. I assume continuing the path that you're sort of referencing from fifth grade forward. How was that experience for you? Wesleyan was and is just like such an interesting place to go to school. So I was a kid who'd been raised in California and had only been out of state once, never been out of the country. And this was a whole new world for me coming from my, you know, mostly Title I schools experience, uh, almost failing out my first semester at Wesleyan because I was catching up academically. I did fine after that, but uh, I set my teeth and I, I was I was going to make it. And I, I learned so much, both from uh, the economics classes I took, which were mostly not what we think of, you know, your normal neoclassical economics. These were classes that questioned market capitalism, um, that talked about the huge flaws in uh in the assumptions made by the economic models on which so much of our policy and political decisions are made. And then likewise with um, my literature classes, it was about loving 
loving this great gift of literature, but also about learning from, you know, Toni Morrison and Zora Neale Hurston, people I'd never been exposed to or read before, um, about the experiences of people who had been much more marginalized than I had been, that's for sure, in this country and, and internationally. So, and then, you know, I, I founded a women's counseling uh, service while I was there and also was um, co-chair of the literary magazine, kept on with, with writing poetry. Were you politicized in a, like a partisan sense at that time? No, which is actually kind of weird because my parents were big Kennedy people, went out and campaigned for him. And my dad had like been a major organizer for um, William Proxmire. I didn't even know this until recently, but that kind of floated away from their lives, I think. When I was growing up, my mom was going to school nights and the nights that she wasn't going to school, my dad had a second job selling shoes. I mean, they were just working really hard. They still found time for community service. And there's this strong tradition of community service in my family or service to country. My dad, grandfather, brother, nephews, uncles all served in the military. I fought for divestment, went to rallies and things like that, but none of it was politicized in terms of partisanship at all. That came much, much later, like five years ago. (laughs) (laughs) You have a couple master's degrees and work on a PhD. if if your LinkedIn is correct and your ABD in political science, you share that with me. Oh, really? Yes. Tell me a little about that post-undergrad education, the various things you did there and why. It's really cool to get a chance to reflect on this, by the way. Thank you. Um, it's cool to hear about it. Yeah. So after undergrad, I joined the Peace Corps and uh, taught in Kenya. And I think both that and experience and my own experience going like to title one schools. And then my parents fought me to get me into magnet schools. And there was this vast disparity in like the, the kind of education I got. And, you know, not everyone's parents have the energy, time, expertise, or opportunity to fight to get their kids into a magnet school. The inequities in our education system are, are really underappreciated and, rooting how, what kind of education you get based on your zip code and uh, the property taxes paid in your, in your area is really heinous. So anyway, I came back, I was going to fix that. (laughs) I wanted to work to make it better. Um, So uh, yeah, I did a master's at Harvard in education administration and and policy. And then I went to Stanford where I was working on um, originally a PhD in education policy administration, and then also a master's in political science. I did not finish because of a family issue. I had a family member who needed uh, full-time care for several years. And so I dropped out to um, take care of, of that family member. Then while I was doing that, I was able to work on my poetry again at a certain point facing, we were in my family, my husband and I and our, our very young children, we were living in Silicon Valley and facing the incredible housing crisis there. And anyway, we I applied to and got into a really terrific MFA, Master of Fine Arts program at the University of Michigan. We moved here, it was supposed to be for two years and really fell in love with Michigan. 
um, we're able to buy a farm to prevent it from being developed. And we have our 80 acres and never thought I'd be a farmer. Here we are. What did you know about farming when you bought that? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I've gardened and grown vegetables. When I was in Kenya, I had like a a shamba, my own small farm plot. Uh, That's probably where I learned the most about farming because I lived where there were no shops. Um, Did your husband know something? No, no. So what do you grow? Um, So what we've done is we have taken um, half the farm and we've restored native prairie. We've planted over a thousand native trees. So which we grow ourselves from seeds or from like these little tiny six inch seedlings that you can get from our county extension service. And the other half, we are finally, after trying very hard for many years, actually transitioning it to organic. So right now it's it's in a, a cover crop to restore the soil, which had been really destroyed over decades of row crops and Monsanto created pesticides and herbicides. When I asked you about partisanship, you mentioned that maybe five years ago, you made a turn in that direction in politics. What occasioned that? So as step up, step a little further back, seven years ago is when I really started getting involved in like activism and organizing. That was inspired mostly by the fact that here in this mostly rural township, what they call landsmen, uh, oil landsmen were coming around. There had been oil drilling and extraction back in like the 30s here. No one, I mean, no one remembered this, but they were buying up oil leases on farms around us and made us an offer on our farm too. And so there's basically no setback requirement from these extraction uh, sites in, in Michigan. So I went out and with people in nearby townships organized and organized here in my township. And we made enough noise that they went away. That was like an early success. <laughs> I wish I could say I'd had as much success since then at the things I've attempted to do. Um, so simultaneously, that was spring 2015. Simultaneously, my son who couldn't drive yet wanted me to drive him to an organizing meeting for someone I'd never heard of, Bernie Sanders. And instead of sitting in the car and writing poetry or something, I I went into this meeting and was hooked because there was a vision for addressing the wide range of issues that had just been nagging at me and worrying me for so long about this country, everything from racial justice to environmental justice and so on. And so I started organizing for Bernie in in Michigan and along with a lot of other people was part of the Michigan miracle. I got hired on staff as special projects director. And then um, the partisan part came because um, one of the things that I saw as vital in Michigan was interacting with local democratic clubs because certainly in my own County, uh, but elsewhere too, there's lots and lots of progressives who resonated with Bernie's message. I mean, I think that's clear from the fact that he won that primary. So I started going to those meetings and interacting with people and building a, a wider coalition. And I ran for county commissioner in, in 2016 and, and flipped a red seat to blue with a lot of support from, from other people who felt the way that I did about where we needed to head. Also ran for DNC and, and won in Michigan. 
what does run for DNC mean exactly? What role? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, so for a Democratic National Committee, um, I ran to be a one of the 440-some uh, people from across the U.S. and Democrats abroad who represent their states or territories to the National Democratic Committee. We're the ones who vote on uh, things like the presidential nominating process, which is like the main purview of the DNC, along with working with state parties in between the presidential elections to keep the party organizing strong. And was that part of the sort of push by uh, people who supported Bernie for president to get representation at the DNC? Absolutely. And then we'll say to the credit of Michigan party leadership at that time that there was support for ensuring that there was someone from the, you know, Bernie progressive coalition representing Michigan because there was such a, uh, there was a recognition that he won the state in the primary. So, but yeah, that happened, I think in lots of States, not just in Michigan. And then when I got on the DNC, um, I was looking around for a way to do more than, than go to a, a meeting. Um, every six to 12 months and vote on resolutions. And I was shocked to realize that there was not any voice for environmental justice or climate at the national level within the Democratic Party's apparatus. I mean, of course, we had lots of congressional leaders and governors, but not within the actual party organization. I spent about a year garnering support. Every meeting we had, I went around with my little clipboard <laughs> and talked with people, um, ended up with, you know, almost a hundred people supporting this, but still wheels are, are slow to move in any organization. And then when there came a push for a climate debate, I worked with Sunrise and Sierra Club and many other organizations, and we didn't win on that, but it created a political opening so that we were able to get the Climate Council approved. I've never thought about running for or been on the DNC committee. Tell me about what that's like, what kind of people you interact with there. How does it feel? It's a huge mix of people on the DNC. Uh, and. There's representation from labor, from the progressive movement, from more moderate or establishment Democrats. One of the things there's been a real movement in over the last five years is there's much more progressive representation than there was to start with. And that started with that push in 2016 and then Elections are held every four years in states, um, not all at the same time. Uh, so some are held in probably 2020, some are held in 2021. Yeah. Um, but there was a big push then as well. Yeah, I, I feel a real sense of community with people who are pushing um, both for a more progressive Democratic Party and for a more effective Democratic Party. I'll work with anyone. We got to win. I mean, Democrats have to win, right? And I I was out there campaigning for Joe Biden. I was out there campaigning for Hillary Clinton. When my candidate loses, I still know what's at stake. It couldn't really be more dire than it is. 
I do strongly believe that a more progressive DNC and Democratic Party and a vision for policies, a policy agenda that is quote unquote progressive, that supports things like Medicare for all and for, you know, fighting to, to make sure that we have a livable planet about the council student loans, et cetera, um, is also a winning set of policies for the Democratic Party in the short term and most definitely in the long term. Does it say something about how permeable the party is that someone who could have been writing poetry in a car and wasn't necessarily brought into this until her son takes her to a meeting that a few years of hard work and organizing and you move to a pretty small subset of political people in the country who are taking part in these meetings about the party's policy and the rules of the game? Or is it an aberration that that someone like you could make it there so quickly? I'm certainly not the only one. There are other people. And, you know, it's it's a combination, I think, of, of, I don't know, good luck being the right person, the right place, as is so much of politics. And life. And life, true. Um, and hard work. And an awful lot of other people who I've worked with and I'm in coalition with, because none of this would have happened without amazing numbers of other people. Yeah. You kind of became part of a team. Tell me about the council that you set up. You, you sort of laid out that it took some organizing to get there, but what is it that you've created and what have you been doing under that banner? So I, I am really proud of the DNC Council on the Environment and Climate Crisis. And we started with creating an inclusive, diverse team. Uh, it's structured that way intentionally. So we have on our executive board, a director of uh, Native American engagement, director of Black engagement, director of Latinx engagement, uh, director of Asian um, American and Pacific Islander engagement, and a youth director, and a science officer, because we need to be obviously based in science. So we started off with a national listening tour. We didn't just go around and listen. We kept track. We took notes. And then we used what we had learned to inform the work of a board of experts, allies from the environmental justice community, allies from the scientific community, from the public health community, to create a policy agenda, our recommendations for the 2020 platform. I was uh, luckily <laughs> named to the DNC's platform committee as a representative of Bernie, because there were Bernie and there were Biden representatives. So along with others, I was able to fight for some of these things. We got 13 plus uh, significant changes made to the draft agenda that was presented that were you know, really helpful on, on climate and environmental justice issues. So that was sort of our first set of work. Then we worked hard to elect uh, Joe Biden. Since his election, we've been working to support and amplify the really important environmental justice and climate parts of his campaign agenda. So we've been fighting hard on getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies. It's incredible that our taxpayer dollars are being used to prop up this industry. We've been fighting hard to uh, shut down Line 5 which threatens the Great Lakes in Michigan. Well, I live in Michigan, uh, not in D.C., and we, we don't need the energy. It's, it's very clear. 
and uh, been fighting on a number of other issues. And the other thing we've been doing, other than this issue-based work, is we've been working on organization and building out the coalition. So when we started, there were only 13 of the 57 states and territories that had a state Democratic Party environmental caucus. We've been working to support the growth of those. So there's three new ones. We hope to help continue building that out. So there's a voice for people who are passionate about these issues in their state Democratic Party. And so we can influence policy at that level as well. Your entry into partisan politics kind of parallels the Trump era, right? Like he's getting going just when you are, he's elected when you're running for offices, he's governing when you're at the DNC. What's your lens on him and the people that support him and sort of Trumpism? You know, just as Bernie was popular in Michigan, so was Trump from a different angle, different people. How do you see that alternate world that we exist alongside? Well, it scares the hell out of me to begin with. And you're right about Michigan. Uh, it was the Michigan GOP co-chair for the state, Michonne Maddock, was uh, organized buses to go to D.C. to take people to the January 6th insurrection. So, yeah, it's it's right here in my state. My state legislators have to go to govern in Lansing with, at times, uh, armed right-wing... Crazies. White supremacists, crazies. Um, I, I think crazies is kind of like doing a disservice to people with mental health issues because these people are, are fascists, many of them, unfortunately. No one should have to, to govern with armed people in the galley above them. I was one of the organizers of the Women's March in Michigan. I was the lead organizer for the Ann Arbor Women's March. We had, the estimates vary from 15,000 to 18,000 people came to the one in Ann Arbor, largest one in the state. And that was, you know, January 2017. And I think about that, that huge upswelling of people. It was women, it was men, it was non-binary, it was children, it was our elders, it was, you know, black, brown, indigenous, less resourced folks. And there's a huge opportunity in that kind of groundswell movement that also harkens back to like 1970 and the very first Earth Day when there were 2 million people that came out for that first Earth Day. I don't know if I can say I understand, you know, the people who are aligned with Trump. There's so many strands that go into it. White supremacy, patriarchy, misogyny, being cut out of our economic system and abused by the very system that they think they support. Lots of strands there. But what I can say is that there's an opportunity to tap into the, the huge, huge numbers of people who don't want that. And I hope that we can generate support, 
regain the energy that we had in January of 2017, going into the midterms and going into the presidential election, because at least as much, if not more, is at stake, certainly in terms of climate, we have even less time now. And the science has shown us that like every time they do another study, actually the apocalyptic future is closer than we thought. As a party um, and we who are organizers, I think we need to be thinking hard about how to mobilize and to listen, to make that happen again, presenting a vision for the future that's positive, that inspires people not just against, but for something. I'm in a moment where we're approaching a midterm and my pessimism about it is hard to control. I've talked to a lot of people who are working awfully hard to move things in the right direction, but some combination of world events and disease and the economy and the vigor on the other side is boding ill. And so much depends on who wins these elections at every level of government, you know, from the Congress to the very small things in towns across the country. And I feel a little bit helpless about like stemming that. I, as one person, I can't do much at all. You are in a little bit more position of power, but you can only, you know, talk to a few people and try to organize a greater number. How do you think about your role from within the Democratic Party's apparatus and many other things that you're doing? I know that you are on many boards and, you know, quite active in lots of ways. What can we, what do you advise people to do in this time? What, what are you trying to do yourself? Talk about how you operate in a moment like this. Well, I would love to hear your thoughts on this too, because I, I don't have all the answers. Um, it is a hard time to organize. I have hope about the midterms and 2024, but it's tempered. I, I am worried. Uh, and my response to that is to put my head down and work even harder. Uh, but one person can only do so much. And part of the reason I was talking about, you know, 1970 or 2017 is that I'm, I'm not seeing that huge mobilizing happening. Maybe to some extent around labor issues, I mean, there's some very encouraging things happening about unionization at, you know, Starbucks and Amazon. And that's workers saying enough is enough and uh, organizing on their own very effectively, but not yet seeing that blossom into a great, you know, workers revolution or workers mobilization. The strategy I've, I've adopted for my work is an inside outside strategy, right? So I try to speak up within the party about the kind of outreach um, and not just outreach, you know, it's gotta be meaningful outreach, just reaching out to people, to youth, environmental voters, to black, brown, indigenous communities that are disproportionately impacted by environmental justice issues doesn't do any good if we're not actually putting real policy and real change behind it. So trying, working hard, you know, democratic party platform, uh, 
showing up at events and talking to everyone I can about how important this is and also that it's it's the right thing to do. And it's also a winning issue for Democrats. I firmly believe, and I think the numbers bear me out, that part of the reason that President Biden won is because of turnout um, in these key demographics um, due in part to his positions on climate and environmental justice issues. It was one of the four planks of his platform. And I, I, Democrats need to not run away from that. They need to run toward it. 40% of Americans live in counties that have been uh, impacted uh, in significant ways by climate change. Um, that's only going to increase over time. So I believe that, you know, this working inside, but also working outside, doing the outreach, doing our listening sessions, um, doing live streams, um, and trying to work to mobilize people around climate and environment is, is one way forward. But it's also true for the other issues and the values that the Democratic Party stands for. And throwing in a little poetry doesn't hurt. <laughs> Communicating with love and genuineness and authenticity matters. I think people, part of the appeal of, of what some people say in a derogatory way is populism. I'm like, Bernie Sanders populism is a good thing, <laughs> but part of it is, is a desire for authenticity and for not the usual spin. We've had the spin for so long. My sense is that our president is generally on the right side of many of these issues, the moves he's made on climate have, that he's been able to make have been in the right direction, that he's hired people that are very competent and point in the right direction, that we've been frustrated by a 50-50 Senate and a couple senators that are, are not allies on enough to get through Build Back Better or other big packages, which is super frustrating. But from the perspective of someone who's rooting for a different candidate in 2020, how do you see the leadership out of the White House, which I want to be supportive of and am, in no administration can get done everything that they want to do. Uh, but how do you how do you see from your lens what's going on at the top of the government on the federal level? I see a need for us to elect a couple more Democratic senators. We <laughs> so, were very close in some right? That great political insight I will, I will give to you for free. Um, but seriously, I, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think that uh, the president's policy agenda was, you know, to many people, surprisingly progressive. There were so many wonderful things on it just speaking in, in my own lane about climate and the environment um, from 40% of, of climate and environmental justice investments going to the communities disproportionately impacted. So uplifting environmental justice and equity to wanting to end fossil fuel subsidies and, and environmental issues like getting enough funding for uh, replacing lead pipes. So, so we have gotten some of that with the infrastructure bill, big chunk of money for, you know, getting rid of the lead pipes, but so much of what needs to happen, we haven't gotten. I am hopeful, you know, Congress is returning to the issue of the reconciliation. Um, I'm, I'm really hoping that we get some of the things that we need, but time is running out. And so 
you know, the big fight right now to me is getting those extra senators holding the House so that Joe Biden can pursue the policies that he campaigned on. And frankly, advocating to ensure that he does, because if he's hearing from the people who don't want that to happen in various uh, areas, including the environment and climate all the time. So need to make sure we're loud and clear about how important that is. What else is happening that people ought to know about at the DNC? If if there's your council, there must be many other areas that people are, are working on. What else of note? is going on? Excellent question. I think the main thing is something happening not in a caucus or a council. One is something happening in what's called the Rules and Bylaws Committee, which is where the decisions are really made about the presidential nominating process. People who are DNC members, a small subset, are appointed to the RBC, Rules and Bylaws Committee, and they have been meeting already and are talking very seriously, I think it's going to happen, about changing which states are going to go first in the primary and caucus calendar. Iowa and New Hampshire going first, I think there's really unlikely to be the same states going first. They're creating an application process for states that want to go early to apply and then be considered. And they're looking at issues like racial diversity, geographic diversity, So I'm hopeful about that because I do think that process needs to change. They're also looking very carefully at encouraging primaries over caucuses, which are obviously less accessible to all sorts of folks for different reasons. So that's one thing. And another thing that's happening that I find really encouraging is there's a, a group of people meeting. There's a Washington Post article about this who are meeting to modernize the DNC and pushing for a set of reforms. I don't know the exact list yet, but um, to, to basically help democratize the DNC itself for those 447 delegates, um, ensure more equal voice. And uh, I think that the issue of superdelegates may come up again, and they may be advocating around that. What's your feeling about whether there should be or will be a primary challenge to the president? I don't know um, where that's going to go. The president has indicated, I believe, that he's likely to run again. Honestly, my focus right now is on the midterms. Once the midterms are over, it's going to be clearer what needs to happen next. What else would you like us to know about what you're working on? One thing that I think is really crucial for people who are working at the national level organizing is to keep one foot firmly in what's happening at the local, regional, or state level. So um, I'm also a labor organizer. I serve as a delegate from my labor union to my area labor federation. I serve there on our Just Transition Committee, and I also serve on my county's environmental council. And that... That twinned experience of working on labor issues and the just transition, that is ensuring that as we move from uh, a fossil fuel extractive economy to a regenerative, a sustainable energy economy, that 
the new green jobs generated are, you know, good family sustaining jobs, union if possible, and also ensuring that we uphold environmental justice in that in that process. It's made me realize that it's uh, the devil's in the detail, the angels are in the detail. It's not easy to come up with great national level policies, but it is really hard to take those and implement them at the local level with where you're uh, often starved of resources, where there's, you know, you don't necessarily have the experts to consult. And yet it's at the local level with some, there's like a big groundswell of things happening in cities and townships and counties, which are just forging ahead on pursuing getting to near zero carbon or net zero carbon policies. So I'm excited that I get to do this. And I also really highly recommend it for other people who are working on policy at a national level to really stay tapped into what's happening locally um, and make sure they take what they learn there to that national level organizing. In a lot of ways, the war in Ukraine is a wrench in the works. It underlines this global battle between democracy and authoritarianism. It also messes up the energy supply of the world and it takes the attention of our government onto big issues like that rather than other things that we could be working on. How much of that reaches the people that you talk to in the local arena and in the national arena and how does it affect things? It's obviously huge and you're absolutely right about the impact out of this and during this terrible tragedy, which which hits home close for my own family. My husband is Polish Canadian, his family, his parents were refugees from Poland during World War II. He has family that, you know, live in the part of Poland that's receiving the, the big influx of refugees. But there's also, I think, an opportunity and impetus in the environmental and climate arena. The thing we need to do is to increase our energy security, both for us, Europe, for the world, by making that transition away from fossil fuels even more urgent and at a higher, faster scale than was planned. And I do worry when I see a reaction being that we need to open the floodgates on drilling and oil leasing a lot of which won't even have an impact in terms of the amount of oil and gas available for years. And knowing that the oil and gas companies are already holding on to leases they're not even using. I love to see us funding heat pumps for Europe and putting more and more money into wind and solar in this country. I think it's a huge mistake to react with medium to long-term policies to increase the oil and gas supply while recognizing that pain at the pump is real and people are now choosing between you know food and, and gas for their car to get to work. So there's the short-term policies that may need to be pursued to relieve that, but I am concerned about some of the, the medium to long-term policies that seem to be being embraced. What's making you most optimistic about in the climate area? Is there anything? It's the amazing people who are involved in our fighting. There's the youth movement, 
which is amazing. There's the elders movement. You know, Bill McKibben just established a new organization getting people over 60 involved. And and honestly, from my experience with the Bernie Sanders campaign, it was a lot of it was youth and elders working together. And that kind of intergenerational, interracial movement is so necessary. So um, I am optimistic because of that. I'm also optimistic when I look, getting back to putting that Democratic Party lens on again, you know, some of the organizing that's happening, state Democratic parties is where the action is at. And I look at, at great leaders like Ken Martin, who's the head of ASDC, the Association of State Democratic Committees, uh, Jane Klepp, Nebraska State Democratic Party chair. I could I could go on. There's lots of like amazing chairs and vice chairs. Some of the vice chairs are very active in the DNC Climate Council. Howard Chu from Colorado, David Green from Washington State, Pete Lee from Oregon. These people are doing this, working within the party to move us in the right direction, both in terms of just like organizing and connecting and also in terms of progressive policy. I always go back to poetry and the arts for for inspiration and hope. I I try to read poetry every morning while I dry my hair. So (laughs) it keeps me going. That makes sense. Uh, Is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? No, I, I don't think so. Can I ask you, where do you go to for inspiration, for hope? I talk to people who are working hard at trying to make this country and world a better place. I think that's encouraging sometimes the amount of talent there and the amount of effort and originality. I think I go to history a little bit and realize that things ebb and flow. And hopefully I've heard pollsters say the best thing for winning in 2024 might be losing in 2022 because then you have someone to run against. Like, I don't want to lose in 2022, but you know, that there's some kind of balancing that happens in a two-party system. And I go to people who are trying to make reforms to maybe structurally place incentives so that better people are elected and fewer crazies, or at least just people reading the wrong kind of news are in positions of power. But I think it's a really trying, really pivotal time. And I think our backs against a lot of walls. So I, I, I hope that we can get it together. I think a lot of times it comes down to the right person at the right time, stepping up and making a difference in the right place. So I hope we have a lot of that going on. I got nothing profound, (laughs) but that's it. It's people, it's words, history, and you're right. I always want to quote Tolkien, and I can never remember the quote, but it's it's Gandalf. I'm a big Tolkien fan. And Gandalf says something like, all we can do is our best in the times that we're placed in. Frodo says, I wish I weren't born now. I wish I weren't having to face this. You do your best with the place, the time, and the opportunities you have to, to make change. And so I really appreciate you doing these podcasts. They're really awesome. Well, it's awesome when there are awesome people, and I appreciate you taking the time. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I think I've talked plenty about myself. 
That was Michelle Dietrich of the DNC. Michelle is at dnc.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.